This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, and these are the words that he pens. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Mark tells us here in the text that from here Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now it's presumed that Jesus was in search of, as he has been previously, a little bit of downtime with his disciples. Jesus tried to withdraw to a desolate place with his disciples back in Mark chapter 6, but we saw that that was short-lived. That evening culminated in Jesus feeding the 5,000. Everywhere Jesus went, he was pursued by the crowds, mostly by spectators just eager to see what he would do next. Most of the time, the crowds that followed Jesus as he crisscrossed in and through the region of Galilee, people were just interested. They were just wanting a look-see at what this miracle worker would do next. Here he is with his disciples, and now they leave Jewish territory. They leave Galilee altogether, and they travel some 50 miles northwest to the Gentile pagan region of Tyre and Sidon. There are two cities there in a, uh, a Greek area right on the Mediterranean Sea. And Mark writes, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. You see, Jesus is like a magnet. He's like a magnet. And that makes any attempt to retreat very short-lived. One man said of Jesus, like perfume betrays itself, so he whose name is perfume cannot be hidden. Jesus was a long way from home, but even so, the Gentile residents of Tyre and Sidon, they knew who he was. Jesus was not in his hometown here. He was not in Capernaum. He was not in Galilee. He, he was not in Jewish territory. Yet people in the pagan city of Tyre and Sidon know who he is. Back in chapter 3, after Jesus healed a man's withered hand, uh, Mark writes, that's chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Followed him from where? From Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. You see, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. 
Suffice it to say, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, there is probably not a place on the face of the planet in and around where Jesus lived where he was not known. Though we certainly can't know for sure, it's very possible that the woman that we meet here in our text in verse 25, it's very possible that she was among the crowds back in Mark chapter 3 who came down from Tyre and Sidon, who came down into, uh, into Jewish territory and was among the crowds that saw Jesus. And so now when Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, it's very possible that this woman seeks Jesus out because she's already seen him once. She's already heard from him once. I want us to focus this morning on the faith of this woman. And I think there are three clear characteristics of faith presented to us in our text that greatly delight Jesus. And so I want to ask you this morning, are these characteristics of your faith? Obviously, there are more than three characteristics of faith that pleases Jesus, but I think there are three that are clear here in the text this morning. And so let's look at them together. If you're taking notes, which I would encourage you to do, write this down. Point number one, faith that pleases Jesus is humble. Faith that pleases Jesus is humble. Look at your Bible there. Let me draw your attention to verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. Mark writes, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. As we've seen in previous chapters, there is very little downtime for Jesus and his disciples. Not wanting anyone to know that they were in town, that didn't last long. And it's interesting to note that Mark is the only one here. Mark is the only of the four gospel writers that tells us that specific piece of information. That Jesus did not want his presence to be known, at least initially. Mark tells us immediately, which is again a favorite word of Mark's. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. Again, I'm presuming here that she was potentially a part of the crowd who had come down from Tyre and Sidon to, uh, to Jewish territory earlier in Mark chapter 3. She hears that Jesus is now in her own hometown, and she comes and she throws himself at his feet, throws herself at his feet. In any event, whether this woman has seen Jesus in the past, whether she has heard from him in the past, we don't know but she knows exactly who he is. She has at least heard of this man. And she has an insurmountable problem. The problem is that her young daughter has an unclean spirit. Now, uh, you'll remember we've talked about this in previous chapters. But to say that someone has an unclean spirit was just another way for Mark and the gospel writers to let us know that this young girl was demon-possessed. She had an unclean spirit. We've encountered several demon-possessed individuals already in our study of Mark. We encountered the man in the synagogue uh, back in chapter 1 who cried out to Jesus. We encountered the garrison man who lived among the tombs uh, back in chapter 5. We encountered those that the apostles were given authority to, to cast out demons over in chapter 6. And now we have this young girl in the text here in front of us this morning. It's possible that the woman's daughter had been utterly terrorized by the demon, just like the young boy uh, did that we'll encounter just a few chapters later in chapter 9. Uh, we'll see in chapter 9 exactly what demon possession looked like, and, and it, was, it was terrible, to say the least. 
The demon in chapter 9 would throw this little boy to the ground, would cause him to foam at the mouth, to grind his teeth, and to become rigid, Mark will tell us. And if that isn't bad enough, the, the demon is said to have often cast him into the fire in an attempt to destroy him. Just awful, awful things. It's very possible this woman's daughter was tormented very similarly, but we don't know for sure. Mark doesn't give us a ton of detail about uh, this, one, this young girl's demon possession here in our text this morning. But we do know that this mother was broken over the state of her daughter, and what she saw was hope in Jesus. She saw hope in this man. And so she comes and she throws herself down in front of him. She approaches Jesus, and I want you to notice her posture, first of all. Mark says that she came to him and she fell down at, her, at his feet. This was a most humble entreaty. Matthew records in his parallel account of this story that she was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Did you catch that language? Have mercy on me, O son of David. Have mercy on me. We'll see blind Bartimaeus use that same language in Mark chapter 10. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. Faith is a buzzword in our culture. Everybody talks about faith. We got bumper stickers to talk about faith. We got t-shirts to talk about faith. We got necklaces to talk about faith. We got tattoos to talk about faith. We have all kinds of other Christian words that we use in lieu of faith. Faith is a buzzword in our culture. You hear oftentimes people say, I'm a believer, I'm a person of faith. But the question is, believer in whom? Faith in what? It's a good question to ask somebody. They tell you, I'm a believer or I have faith. Well, believer in whom? Faith in what or faith in whom? Belief and faith must be in the right object, better stated, the right person. Our faith and our belief have to be rooted, have to be anchored, have to be tethered to the right person. You have to put your faith in something true. Again, better said, someone true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation. You can't go over me. You can't go under me. You can't go around me. You must come through me. People oftentimes talk about uh, the fact that the exclusivity of Jesus is a bad thing. Don't tell me that there's only one way. Don't tell me that everyone else who believes in everyone else is wrong and you're right. I say, right, Jesus himself said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If your faith is not rooted in the right person, if your belief is not rooted in the right person, then it is misplaced. Jesus Christ is the only legitimate object or person of faith. And this woman humbly recognizes that. And so she bows at his feet. Have you? Have you recognized Jesus' holiness, his righteousness, his perfect nature, the fact that he will one day judge the living and the dead? There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Have you bowed your heart to him? 
and humble faith. This woman was not only humble, but she was also repentant. Again, Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew writes in his parallel account that she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. You see, mercy assumes unworthiness. Mercy assumes unworthiness. When this woman comes to Jesus and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, she knows something about her unworthiness. We have to know something about our unworthiness, too, if we would ever turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. Unless we see ourselves as unworthy. Unless we see ourselves, just as we sang this morning, a sinner condemned unclean, we will never turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. You'll see no need for him. Mercy assumes unworthiness. This woman recognizes that she's unworthy and she's undeserving And so she's repentant. She comes to Jesus, the right object and person of faith, but she also comes with the right attitude, humility. We can see this lady mirrored in David's words in Psalm 51, verse 17. I would encourage you to to memorize Psalm 51, 17 if you're looking for a good verse to memorize, to hide in your heart, to commit to memory. David tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Likewise, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 3, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who understand their brokenness, their uncleanliness, their unworthiness, their poor in spiritness, that they're bankrupt apart from Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting to note how Mark highlights this woman's heritage as well. Did you notice that in the text? He describes her in the beginning of verse 26. Look at your Bible there. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. This description tells us that this woman, at least from a Jewish perspective, had absolutely nothing going for her. Absolutely nothing going for her. First she was a Gentile. Actually, let me back up. First she was a woman. And we know in Jesus' day that women, unfortunately, were highly, highly marginalized. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 4 and had the conversation with the woman at the well? I mean, that would have been appalling for any religious Jewish person to have taken a seat there next to a woman. Thank God that women are less marginalized in the world that we live in today. Thank God that the the Bible, God's word, communicates the dignity and the value and the worth of women. Praise God. Image bearers of the king. Daughters of the king in Christ. She's a woman, and she was a Gentile. That meant that she was Greek by religion. Therefore, she would have been a a, a pagan idolater, probably a Baal worshiper. It's probably who we're dealing with here. Mark tells us that she was a Gentile, and everyone from this area along the Mediterranean Sea there, in these Phoenician cities, specifically of Tyre and Sidon, were, were idol worshipers. Greek religion, Greek philosophy... 
The Jewish religious system of clean and unclean extended far beyond foods. You see, the Jews applied it to people, especially Gentiles. That's why we saw in our, in our text last week that, that even to go to the market for the average Jewish person meant that you had to come home and, and become ceremonially clean again because you would have touched something that a Gentile probably touched. You couldn't go to the market and not come home unclean because you would have been exposed to a Gentile who in the Jewish mind and according to the Jewish religious system were unclean. The Gentiles were considered by the Jews to be unfit, unworthy, defiled, aliens of the covenant of God, a cursed people under divine judgment, therefore separated from the life of God. And so a Jewish person, a pious Jewish person, would have wanted nothing to do with a Gentile. But yet Mark tells us Jesus is engaging a Gentile woman. Not only was she a Gentile, but Mark also refers to her as a Syrophoenician. That's part Syrian and part Phoenician. In other words, she did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic, but rather she spoke the foreign language of Syria. Matthew calls her a Canaanite in his parallel account in Matthew chapter 15. Interestingly enough, the Canaanites of whom this woman would have been a descendant, were the group of people whom God commanded Israel to conquer and utterly destroy back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I mean, this is the woman here. And so you ask yourself, why the detailed description? Why why does Mark go, go through the trouble here of communicating such a detailed description of this woman? Why does he tell us that she's a Gentile? Why does he tell us that she is Syrophoenician? Why does Matthew tell us that she's a Canaanite? Why the description? Well, I think Mark describes this woman in such detail so that we would understand that the lady who comes and throws herself at Jesus' feet could not be any more non-Jewish than she is. She, She couldn't possibly be any farther away from what it means to be Jewish than she is. And that's significant. It's significant because it sets up an undeniable contrast in our text this morning between the rejection of Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees, but yet a humble acceptance of Jesus by a character who is least likely on the face of the planet to do so. You catch that? The religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, reject Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I've come to my own, but my own did not receive me. But yet it is the exact opposite. It's a Syrophoenician Gentile Baal worshiper who humbly comes and throws herself at Jesus' feet. I think Mark wants us to see that contrast very clearly. Let me ask you this question. As you look at this lady, is your faith humble? Does your faith bring you to the feet of Jesus? Does your faith bring you to the low place at his feet? Remember what we learn in the New Testament? God opposes the what? The proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
We'll see at the end of our study this morning that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Faith that pleases Jesus is humble. Number two, write this down. Faith that pleases Jesus is persistent. Faith that pleases Jesus is persistent. Look at your Bible there. Look at the back half of verse 26 and on into verse 27. Mark writes, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. Now, here's this woman, this Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite, idol worshiper woman, at least previously. And she comes to Jesus expressing humble faith. And what is she asking? What is she asking for? Mark says she begged him. The word there is implored. It's the exact same word that is used of of Christians as to how we ought to encourage others to repent and believe. Remember Paul said, we beg you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here this woman, she begs Jesus, she implores him to cast the demon out of her young daughter. The Greek word here, beg, it's in the imperfect tense. It just means that this woman did not ask once. She did not ask twice. She did not ask three times. She kept on asking, continually asking Jesus. She was persistent in her request. How persistent are we in our requests? I think oftentimes, and and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, probably not because there's no temptation that sees you except that which is common to man. But if you're anything like me at times, my faith is not persistent. We come to the Lord and ask him. We bring our our request. We bring our supplication to him. And if we don't get an immediate affirmative answer, we stop asking. This woman persistently continued to ask. She kept on asking. Matthew's account says that Jesus at first did not answer the woman. Interesting. Jesus at first did not answer the woman. And the disciples, though they're growing, they still don't get it. The disciples in Matthew's account actually beg the exact same word, Jesus, to silence this woman's request. You catch the play on words here? Here's this woman, least likely to be bowed and to be low at Jesus' feet. She's begging Jesus to heal her daughter And just a couple steps away, Jesus' disciples, though they're growing, are begging Jesus, same word, to silence her. Send her away, for she's crying out after us, the disciples say in Matthew 15, 23. But the disciples' attempt to hush this woman's need was not enough for this mama. She she was not about to be quieted. She was not about to be silenced. She was not about to be censored. She was persistent. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 27. He says, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. Now, this is very interesting language here. Jesus' comparison between the children and the dogs appears to be a refusal to meet her request. Remember, she comes begging Jesus, heal my daughter. And how does Jesus respond? 
He responds by saying, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. I don't know about you, but if I was the woman making the request, that's not quite the response I would have expected. There's an important distinction that we need to be aware of here. Lest Jesus' reply to this woman seem cold and insensitive and harsh and brash because it could not be anything farther from that. Remember the Jews thought of Gentiles not only as unworthy and as unclean, but in Jewish religious thinking, a Gentile was a dog. Gentile dogs, just wild, dirty scavengers of the street, an unwanted nuisance. That's how the Jews thought of the Gentiles. But Jesus didn't use the ordinary Greek word for wild dog here. Kuon is the Greek word there for just the the ordinary kind of alley dog. The dog that would have been tearing through the trash the dog that would have been very aggressive if you had approached it. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. Instead, Jesus uses the diminutive word for little dog, kunarion. Not, not, not the wild, vicious, rabid dog, but rather the family pet. That's the word that Jesus uses here. So lest we think that Jesus is being cold and callous and insensitive, he's not. He's not. Jesus uses the word for the family pet. You see, the family dog would sit under the table and would wait for what fell on the floor or from what was offered by the master. What exactly do Jesus' words mean? Well, it should be clear that Jesus does not share the, the predominant Jewish prejudice against Gentiles. Jesus does not share that Jewish prejudice against the Gentiles. So what does he mean when he says, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs? Well, Jesus is simply saying here in this verse exactly what Paul has said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Anybody have memorized? Romans 1, 16? No hands. The last time I did that, I called on somebody. Mike, you got it memorized? What is it? Romans 1, 16. Excellent. Yeah, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First, this is important, first to the Jews and then to the Greek or then to the Gentile. Jesus is simply affirming the fact here in our text that the gospel was to be made manifest first to Israel, the privileged children of God, and then subsequently preached to the Gentiles. First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. I think that Jesus responded to this woman the way he did, that he might test her faith. We have to remember that that miracle workers in Jesus' day were a dime a dozen. They were all over the place. I mean, on every street corner, you couldn't go anywhere uh, without being confronted by someone claiming to be a miracle worker. Mysticism was rampant in Jesus' day. They were a dime a dozen in the Hellenistic world of the first century. Throngs of people were attracted to these so-called miracle workers. 
Even in the predominantly Jewish territory of Galilee, Jesus had been regarded as one of these just, quote, divine individuals whom the masses paraded behind. But the power of God is not dispensed in connection with superstition or magic, but rather in response to genuine faith. That's how the power of God is dispensed. It is dispensed as a response to genuine faith. And so Jesus tests, I think here, the genuineness of this woman's faith. But in light of the larger context of this passage, I'm persuaded that Jesus responded the way that he did for another reason as well. Remember that Jesus and his disciples had just recently been confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees as to why they did not hold to the tradition of the elders. Remember the Jewish elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, had added their own oral traditions to the law of God and elevated those oral traditions so highly that those oral traditions even came to supersede the authority of God's revealed word. And contained in those oral traditions were deep-rooted prejudices against the Gentiles. Again, to the Jews, the Gentiles were considered to be unclean in every way. And I think that Jesus, himself not holding the predominantly Jewish-held prejudices against the Gentiles, uses this language for the sake of his disciples, who themselves were not impervious to such merciless thinking. In other words, all that said to say, Jesus' disciples, who were themselves Jewish, had been exposed to the same prejudices against the Gentiles as the rest of the Jews. Just like we said a couple of weeks back that Jesus' disciples, though they're growing, they still have with them a lot of the trappings of, of Jewish theology. Jesus' disciples had bought in to some degree of the whole idea that uncleanliness came from the outside and that you could be defiled by certain foods. We saw that last week with Peter uh, later on in chapter Acts, or in, in Acts uh, when, when he refused to eat uh, what God had said was clean. And so I think here Jesus' disciples had, had to some degree bought into this prejudice. And so I think one of the reasons that Jesus says what he says here is that there might be a teachable moment with his disciples. That he might help to dispel this prejudice thinking, this merciless thinking that, that the Gentiles are just unworthy, dirty street dogs. I think what Jesus is doing here is teaching his disciples that even the most unlikely prospect, that is a Canaanite, Gentile, pagan woman, could humbly ask for and receive his mercy and his grace. You catch that? The Gentiles, contrary to wide-held belief, were not outside of the mercy of God. Yes, the gospel is going first to the Jews and then subsequently to the Gentiles. But Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Gentiles are not outside of the mercy of God. They are not incapable of receiving the mercy of God. In faith, by faith, they had the same access to the very same mercy and grace that the Jews had. Here's a noteworthy principle. Don't ever rule out who might come to Christ 
don't ever rule out in your mind who might or might not come to Christ. Every single one of us, probably without exception, knows someone. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's an acquaintance. Someone in your relational sphere of influence that we have in that file in our heart and mind, that, that file that says, lost is last year's Easter egg. That guy or that girl, they are as lost as a ball in tall weeds. There's no way that they're ever coming to Christ. Well, friends, let me remind you that such were some of you. If God's mercy and God's grace can reach down into a vile, condemned sinner's heart like mine and like yours, then God can save any sinner to the uttermost. Don't ever discount who God might be able to save. Don't ever rule out who might come to Christ. In Matthew's account of this story, Jesus reminded the woman that he had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we can't forget that Jesus told his disciples uh, back in John chapter 10, verse 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this pen, or I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and they must come also. Interpretation, I have other sheep that are not Jewish, and they must come also. Praise God, because most of us are not Jewish. Praise God that the gospel extends to the Gentile. Jesus' encounter with the pagan Gentile woman who exhibited faith was a forecast, I think, so to speak, of the coming Gentile inclusion. That the Gentiles will be included in the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. The gospel came through the Jews, first to the Jews and through the Jews. But it was never intended to only be for the Jews. You see, Israel was never intended to be an end of God's redemptive plan or saving purposes. Rather, they were meant to be a means to an end. The reason Jesus came to Israel first is so that Israel could be a means of salvation for the Gentiles. Not a means as, as though the Jews were the Gentile Savior. Jesus is the Savior, but the means of communicating the truth of the gospel. The story before us this morning is meant to be a preview of how the gospel would spread to the Gentile world. And this was an important lesson for the disciples if they were going to take Jesus at his word, if they were going to obey his last command to make disciples of what? All nations. All nations. Friends, is your faith persistent? Is your faith persistent? Number three, faith that pleases Jesus is confident. Faith that pleases Jesus is confident. Look at verse 28. But she, that is the woman, answered him, Yes, Lord, yet, or even so, the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see what's happening here? This woman, a Canaanite Gentile pagan, came to Jesus, threw herself at his feet, begged that he might cast the demon out of her young daughter, and then Jesus seemingly denies her request. But this mama isn't ready to take no for an answer. She is confident in Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting. You say, well, Eric, you started off saying faith that pleases Jesus is humble. And then you say faith that pleases Jesus is confident. Can, can those two things go together? Can you be humble and confident at the same time? And I would submit to you, you absolutely can be humble and confident at the same time. Not confident in yourself, but God confidence. Confident in what God can do, that he will do what he has said he will do. I'm confident in the integrity of God. I hope you are too. I hope you are too. This mama's reply to Jesus is laced with both profound wit and confident trust. She says, yes, Lord, I understand that the children, that's the Jews, I understand that they must be fed first, but let the, let the dogs, let us Gentiles eat also the crumbs that fall from the table. In other words, if the dogs eat the crumbs that fall to the ground from the table, then aren't they fed at the same time? As the children, you see her wit here? If the children are sitting there at the table, which by the way, I just vacuumed yesterday. We, we oftentimes eat at three or four bar stools there in our, in our kitchen. And I have an 11-year-old son. And it's interesting. You can tell everything you need to know uh, about the difference between a little boy and a little girl by looking under their chair. Okay? We don't need to feed the dog. Uh, because our 11-year-old son feeds her. I mean, there's enough under his stool to feed her for weeks. What, what this woman is saying here is, yes, feed, feed the children. The gospel goes to the Jews first. But as they're eating, as those crumbs fall to the ground, let the little dogs eat at the same time. Let the little dogs eat at the same time. You see the wit, the humility, the confidence that she employs here. She didn't respond with resentment that Jesus referred to her as a dog. And furthermore, all she asked for was mere crumbs. What faith? What faith? The writer of Hebrews tells us without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's God confidence. God confidence. Is your faith confident? Is it humble? Is it persistent? And is it confident? Well, let's close this morning by looking at G how Jesus responds to this woman. Number four there on your outline is this. Jesus responds to humble, persistent, confident faith with grace. Jesus responds to this woman's humble, persistent, confident faith with grace. Look at your Bible there. Look at verse 29 and 30. And he, Jesus, said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Now, it would be foolish to presume that it was this woman's persistence in and of itself which earned Jesus' attention and his healing power. No, this, this woman knew that she did not deserve Jesus' help. She knew that she was unworthy of him. She knew, though, that her only hope for forgiveness and healing for her daughter was his gracious mercy. Was his gracious mercy. By definition, the person who asks for mercy, again, asks for something that is undeserved. 
This woman didn't come demanding. She came pleading. And there's a major difference. She didn't come demanding. She came pleading, begging, entreating, imploring. She didn't ask Jesus for his help on the basis of her own goodness, but rather on the basis of his. You catch that? The same is true of us. We don't don't come to Jesus and make our case on the basis of our own goodness. We come to Jesus asking for forgiveness for our sin based on his goodness, based on his righteousness, based on his grace, based on his mercy. So her persistence didn't earn the favor of Jesus, but it certainly did demonstrate her faith. It demonstrated her faith. And how did Jesus respond? Look at the the verse here. And he said to her, for this statement you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found her child lying there in the bed, and the demon was gone. Matthew writes in his parallel account here that Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. It's interesting. The word uh, great in the Koine Greek is mega. That's where we... Get our idea of that which is huge or large, mega. Something's mega. Something is great. Matthew tells us that Jesus answered this woman saying, Your faith is great. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What was it that was so great about this woman's faith? What was it that was so great about her faith? It's not because it was stronger or more sincere or more mature even than many of the Jews who had believed in Christ, but rather because it was based on so little light. Here's what I mean by that. The Jews had the oracles of God. The Jews were the chosen people of God. All through redemptive history, I will be their God and they will be my people. The Gentiles did not have that light. They did not have access to the word of God. What makes this woman's faith so great, what makes this woman's faith mega here, is not that her faith was more mature, not that it was stronger even, but because she had faith in light of so little previous revelation. Of who God is. Peter was said to have had little faith when he jumped out of the boat on the Sea of Galilee and tried to walk to Jesus. Remember, that was just a, a little while ago. Right after Jesus fed the 5,000, his disciples get back in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're wind-tossed there. Mark doesn't tell us in his gospel, but that's the same place where, Jesus, or where Peter jumps out of the boat and tries to walk to Jesus, and he begins to sink there. The woman's faith wasn't considered great because it was more mature, but because it came with humility, persistence, and trust. Jesus delights in humble, persistent, confident faith like the woman. Just like the woman who came uh, returning to the judge day after day after day, who pleaded her case, who for a little while was refused, but afterward the judge said, though though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she'll not continue coming. This woman came to Jesus, the woman in our text here, on the other side of the cross. She, like us, she, unlike us, rather, did not have the full revelation of God's love demonstrated in the death of Christ. You see, we can look back and we see, and we see Christ crucified for us. 
This woman had great faith on the other side of the cross. And not only that, but she, she was the most unlikely individual. We've all been raised with varying degrees of spiritual influence, some less and some others more. But just like Jesus meets the needs of this woman and restored her tormented daughter, he can also heal your heart. Jesus can tame your madness. Jesus can make you a new creation. Jesus can remove that heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. Just like he tamed the sin and the madness of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, so he can tame the sin and the madness in your heart. He can heal that insidiously evil heart that we all have, which condemns us. We studied that last week, but what's required? Well, the requirement is that we have humble faith, and that humble faith must bring you to the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the promise from Jesus. We'll conclude here. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you found rest for your soul? You only find rest for your soul when you come to Jesus, throw yourself at his feet in humble faith. He can forgive my sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as your eyes sweep the worship center this morning, that you would find those here who have a humble persistent, confident faith in Christ. Reminded of that Old Testament passage, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Lord, I pray that your eyes would stop here this morning. Father, if there's any person here this morning who does not know Jesus by faith, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they would repent of their sin pray that they would stop trusting in themselves, that they would lay down all their vain striving, and that they would come to Jesus in humble, humble faith and a turning from their sin. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.